Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we show you how to solve any problem in your life using a simple and no-risk tool that you can start with right now. We dig into why you get stuck on problems and how we often deceive ourselves. We talk about why reasons are often a ruse and how they can become even more dangerous when they turn into excuses. We share these ideas and much more with our guest, Dr. Bernard Roth. Do you need more time? Time for work? Time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called how you can create time for the things that really matter in life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, We showed you how to command your focus and attention. We discussed why many people have the wrong idea of what it means to be productive and how thinking that you need to boil your life 
down to spreadsheets and checklists is the wrong way to approach productivity. We shared the secret ingredient for true productivity and looked at exactly how you could implement it practically and realistically in your life with our previous guest, Chris Bailey. If you want to feel more focused and productive, listen to that episode. Now for our interview with Bernie. Please note, this episode contains profanity. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Bernie Roth. Bernie is the co-founder of the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. He's one of the world's pioneers in robotics and the primary developer of the concept of the creativity workshop. He's the best-selling author of The Achievement Habit, Stop Wishing, Start Doing, and Take Command of Your Life. His work has been featured in Fortune, New York Times, Fast Company, Business Insider, and more. Bernie, welcome to The Science of Success. Hi, glad to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today, and I think your message and your work is really going to resonate with our listeners. I'd love to start out with sort of a simple question that I think is going to unpack a lot of the ideas and themes that you've written about. Why do people get stuck on problems in their lives? Well, you know, I'd say the main thing that I've come up with in my studies is they are trying to solve the wrong problem. It's not usually that the problem is beyond them or very difficult. It's just that it's the wrong problem. So what does that mean? I'll give you an example. (laughs) So I was working with a group and uh, some woman had the problem of she couldn't get her boyfriend to stop snoring. And they had gone through all sorts of medical procedures, the wits end, and she just wanted to somehow get him to stop snoring. And I, the method I use to define the right problem is to ask them, what would it happen if they solve their problem? So when I asked her, what would it do for you if his snoring was stopped? She said, I could get a good night's sleep. Okay, well, at that moment, if she was willing to let go of the snoring issue and just look at the real problem is, how do I get a good night's sleep? Well, there are lots of solutions to that. The minute she reframed the problem from snoring to sleep, it, the solution space opened up tremendously. And one of the solutions would be to get the, the boyfriend to stop snoring, but that isn't working, okay? So what are the others? Well, I had, to, of course, the fun answer I could give her right away would be, well, the way you could get a good night's sleep is change boyfriends. But more seriously, she could get a good night's sleep by sleeping in another room, by getting uh, earplugs. And so, you know, many there are many ways of handling getting a good night's sleep. So that's a very simple and kind of trivial example, but that's really what happens all the time. We're fixated on something. Now, the truth is we're all great problem solvers. You know, everybody who's in your audience, I don't know them, but I'm sure they solve hundreds and hundreds of problems every day. They don't have problems eating. They don't have problems walking, getting dressed, meeting people, phoning, uh, looking at their cell phone, uh, doing their email. It goes on and on and on, all the things they solve. So why is it the things that people lose sleep over are generally really simple things. They're not rocket science. And if you think about that, and I've looked at it a long time with a lot of people, it's that they're really stuck on the wrong problem. And even if they solved it, it might not be the right problem. Like if the boyfriend stopped snoring, he might be very active sexually and she would never get any sleep. Who knows? You know, the point simply is that it's we're most of us are bright enough to solve all the problems that come in our lives. And the fact that we get stuck on problems shows that they're just the wrong one. I'll give you another trivial example. In my life, I had a visitor from Slovenia, and I wanted to show him the wine country 
north of uh, Stanford, and uh, I didn't have a car available, so I rented a car. We drove, and we had a great time, and at some point, the car was running short on gasoline, so I pulled into a gas station. And then I started to look for the button that would open the gas tank cover. And I looked for about three or four minutes, and I was very frustrated. Every place I looked, which was where I they had been in all other cars I'd been in, it wasn't there. So I took out the manual, and I started to look for where it is. And then a car pulled into the gas station that was of similar make. So I ran up to the woman. I said, this is a stupid question, but can you please tell me where the button that releases the gas tank cover is? And she said, there is none. Okay. <laughs> and so what I was doing is I was dealing with the wrong problem. I was trying to look for the button instead of trying to get the cover open. And it's a simple example of the kinds of things we do. We think we work, we're actually working with a solution that doesn't work, and we think it's a question. And these kinds of issues go on all the time, including very serious technical problems. I can give you some problems from industry. I can give you some problems from research. It comes up all the time. And even in areas like, you know, I used to do a lot of research in robotics, and I would be one of the world's leading experts in the area, and I would give a student a problem to work on for their thesis, and we'd work and we'd work, and then after about a year or so, we'd find that wasn't quite the right problem. And once we found the right problem, it became very easy for the student to finish up and graduate and write up their thesis. So it really it occurs in almost all phases of problem solving, both a professional and personal life. I think you bring up a really important point, which is the examples you've given are kind of fun and yeah. easy to understand. But the reality is that this applies to much larger and bigger problems in our lives, not just not just things like snoring. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a really great one from industry. It's actually a TED Talk you readers, your listeners should watch. Uh, it, the guy's name is Doug Dietz, and he was a, um, he still is, he's a sort of chief designer at General Electric Medical, and he designed a MRI machine for children. And after some time, he went down to a local clinic to look at the machine, and basically uh, he uh, talked to the nurse and she said, uh, we love your machine, it's so great. And he was feeling very proud of what he had done. And then a child is dragged in screaming and kicking and the nurse says, you have to leave because we have to sedate the child. And he finds out at that point that about 85% of the children that go into his machine have to be sedated. So he feels very depressed that he sort of did a terrible thing in the world. And when he looked at the machine from a child's eyes, he, it looked like a metal monster the child was asked to crawl into. So he realized, you know, there was something wrong. So uh, he, he kind of went and started to do some research with children. He, he interviewed children that are chronic patients and had a lot of them. And he found one girl that uh, had a lot of cancer issues and she was getting a lot of radiation. And when he, he realized she had no adventure in her life at all. She just was into this medical situation where her siblings had all this adventure. So he realized really the problem was, how do I put some adventure into this woman's life, this girl's life? And what he had G do is they, re, they repainted the rooms. 
where they had these machines in the clinics. So they made an adventure series. They made one like a pirate ship. They made one like going to camp. And it changed. They sent, They made comic books. They reframed the whole experience from the child to a med- from a medical experience to an adventure experience. So really the question he realized retrospectively, he should have asked himself, how do I bring some adventure into these poor children's lives? Not how do I kind of... Uh, give them a medical experience. So that's like on a a more abstract level, but that's really the big aha. I mean, when you see the TED talk, he cries. He feels like, you know, he was totally misunderstood the problem he should have been working on. And that happens over and over again. We've had people go to Myanmar ostensibly to design the water pumps and they realize the real problem is lighting and they design LED lighting. And when it's all done, they've affected the lives of 10 million people that they wouldn't have if they'd stayed with the original problem of water pump. So it happens on all levels uh, where uh, people come in, uh, companies assign us problems, I'm invited in as a consultant, and they sort of know a solution. So they, you know, they sort of give me half the answer. And unless I'm clever enough to reframe the problem, I'm just wasting everyone's time because they don't need me if they know the answer. So it's, it's just all the time, if you're stuck, reframe the problem and the way to reframe it is really simple it's just ask yourself what it would do for you to solve the problem and then work on that as the problem not the original one it's very easy to execute and i cannot tell you how many emails i get from people who've read about it in my book or heard it in one of my lectures who find it's a really great tool and it's a no risk tool i mean you know if it doesn't work reframe it again. And the way to reframe it is just simple. What would it do for me if I solve this problem? And that gives you your new problem. I love that reframing tool and I want to dig into it, but I want to come back. Can you kind of explain and elaborate a little bit on this idea that if you're stuck on a problem, it's the wrong one? And why do we get so fixated on solving the wrong problems? It's just because we our mind picks a solution. You know, we jump to solution. As you listeners probably know, the amount of information that comes in through our senses is minute compared to the amount of information that our brain has. So you're getting these visual things when you look at something, and then your brain tells you what you're looking at, really. And so we ha- we're working on our historical experience. We- we're kind of using stuff that's happened before, and we look that way. So a good example, I was doing a workshop over at uh, at uh, Microsoft, and uh, there was a big crowd. And uh, the question I asked people, "What do you lose sleep over?" And this one woman was bravely enough. She raised her hand. She said, "I can't find a good man." As an example, and uh, you know, in the conversation, what would it do for you? She found a good man. Well, I'd have a good life. Well, see that. So that she made that jump that somehow a good man will give her a good life. Well, that's a ridiculous jump. I mean, I'm a good man, and I was there, not with my wife. If she had a real good man, he'd be out in the world. He wouldn't be giving her companionship. So the point simply is we have a need, and we we try and jump to figure out what's going to satisfy it, and often it's the wrong thing. It's the classic thing when people have anxiety and they stuff themselves with food, and they get fatter. And they get fatter because they uh, they don't uh, do the right thing. I'll give you a, this is a perfect example. Uh, there's a woman, she's a science writer for the New York Times, and uh, she wanted to do some uh, projects for New Year's Eve for the readers. So somehow she talked to someone who knew me, and the person told her she ought to talk to me because at the school we do all sorts of problem solving. And she called me up and she said, well, what would be good problems? I said, well, 
It doesn't work that way. The way it works is you have to ask people what they're working on and then reframe it. She said, well, give me an example. I said, well, okay, tell me what in your life is really troublesome. She said, well, to be frank, it's a little embarrassing, but I put on so much weight that I don't go out anymore. I, and I skipped my college reunion because I didn't want my, uh, my former classmates to see how heavy I've gotten. So all I do is sit home and meet my deadlines and write and write. So I, so I said, well, okay, uh, so what would it do for you if you lost, I mean, have you tried to lose weight? Oh, I've tried everything. All right, well, wh what would it do for you if you lost weight? Lose weight? She said, well, I'd have a social life. So I said, okay, forget about losing weight, just work on your social life. And she said, thank you, I'll think about that. And then I didn't hear anything from two months or something. And then I got an email from her. It says, look at my next Tuesday's column. <laughs> and I look at the column when it comes out and it says, well, she tells the story. And then she says, what happened is I just ignored the losing weight thing. I have a social life and I lost 25 pounds. So it's a really good example how she didn't face what the real issue was. And then she saw a symptom of it and tried to treat the symptom them rather than the, not disease, but, you know, the thing that wasn't working. And so, yeah, I sent her a thank you message and all that. And she just sent back, a, you know, a short message saying, yeah, it really works. <laughs> she was amazed by it. But it's really in every realm of life. We seize a solution because it's the easy thing to do. And we don't know that it would really help us. So we decide to get married because of maybe social pressures or things like that. But maybe that's not what we're really after. And if, if you get married, that's fine. But a lot of people get married, it doesn't work, and they get divorced, and they try again, they try again. But so it's just a matter of getting to what is really you want to get at. Now, that may be hard for some people because we tend to lie to ourselves. We don't tell ourselves the truth. We have a certain self-image and you know, it's very complicated. But basically, uh, if you're open minded about it and you're willing to let go, it will work. Most people don't even want to let go of their problems. A lot of people sort of hug their problems. They want to talk to their friends about, you know, they kind of pretend they want to be rid of them, but they want to have, a, it gives them conversational topics. But really, if you're willing to let go of a problem, it's very easy to get the, get the real solution. The one thing you have to be really careful of is some people don't understand the difference between disappearing a problem and solving a problem. If you disappear a problem, it's never in your life again. It's gone. It's just totally gone. That's much better than solving a problem because if you solve it, you know, it may undo itself and it'll still be there. So really, uh, that's what you want. If you have really troublesome things, you want to make them disappear from your life. And if you do that, uh, it doesn't matter what, what the original problem is. So getting back to that woman at Microsoft, if she had companionship, it wouldn't matter if she found a good man or not. You know, if she found a loving dog or if she went to, into the uh, army or whatever she would do to get companionship, uh, she wouldn't have to worry about finding a good man. The, that's a disappeared problem. And then she might find a good man in spite of it, but it, it wouldn't be dealing with the issue of companionship. So it's a little complicated. People, as you know for sure, are complex. But it's a very simple model. What would it do for you if you solve the problem? And don't hold on to the idea that you need to worry about the original problem. If it's really not the right problem, forget about it. Disappear it from your life. I love that analogy of sort of solving the symptom instead of solving the root cause. Yes. And I think it really gets to this idea, as you touched on, that we have to be super clear about what we actually want what the result, what the 
end result is that we're trying to really achieve. How do we battle through, as you say, it's sort of deceiving ourselves to to really figure out what we actually want? Yeah, right. And it may take some iteration, but you know, it's, you're doing this all in your head and, or at home. It's there's no risk in it, and if you have the wrong thing, reframe again. But it's a matter of being truthful to yourself and know you may not know. So you try one or two things. Sometimes, if you say, "Well, we'll do for me," you come up with something. Try coming up with several other things, and usually, when you get the right thing, you feel it in your belly. You know that's the right thing. But often, in work with with groups, people come up with all sorts of things which are nonsense sense, which are not the right thing at all. And so it's really hard for them to tell themselves. An example of that was some woman I worked with, uh, uh, her rack of uh, her lack of sleep was due to getting her daughter into a good college. <laughs> and uh, clearly when I worked with her, it wasn't that at all, because, you know, once she'd gotten her daughter into a good college, she'd worry about who her daughter is sleeping with or what her daughter is majoring in. And, you know, she'd have other things to worry about. So the real problem was how to her to not have anxiety about her daughter and to let her daughter live her life and, you know, to be a supportive mother, but not an anxious nothing to do with getting the daughter into a good college because as I said once you got her in there'd be other things to worry about so it's a matter of telling yourself the truth that the problem is not the daughter in college the problem is my anxiety and I have to learn how to uh, get it more lib- equilibrium in my life and think or whatever so it's that kind of thing and as I say if it's not doesn't strike gold the first time around just keep reframing you'll get to it I want to dig in more to this notion of lying to yourself. Why do people deceive themselves and how can we move past it? Well, we have a self-image and uh, we try to support that self-image or go against. It's kind of complicated. You know, I grew up in New York and I knew a lot of shady characters and they, uh, some of them pride themselves as being nasty people. So, you know, their self-image is that they were nasty. So if they would do a kind thing, they, they had to make it into something nasty to make them be, not be soft as they think but most of us who are more normal we want to be nice people we want to have a nice life and so forth so and we do we all do things which we're not proud of we all do nasty things and we, and we have motivations which we're not willing to tell ourselves so it's just a matter of supporting the, who we want to be or who we built ourselves up to or, and some people uh, have the issues they drag themselves down you know so we don't have a realistic picture of who we are in general and whatever picture we have we generally try to support that picture and so that makes it us have to lie to ourselves because our actions are never not are not always in accord with who we want to believe we are so that's one kind of cause for that kind of thing of doing you know i just i want to be bernie i don't you know i'm not i'm not this nasty person so once I do something nasty, I have to lie to myself about it and blame someone for it or make excuses. And you know, we're very complex and it's a very complex system in our head uh, that controls us. And, uh, you know, we think we control it, whatever that is up in our head or our mind or wherever you want it. But we're on automatic so many times uh, that it's. It just, uh, I cannot tell you why. I could just tell you that's the way the system works. And you can, there are various models as to what we're trying to do and how we're trying to protect ourselves. But it's it's reality. I mean, everybody lies to themselves in one way or another. And you 
write about and talk about this under the framework of saying, you kind of use the, the tongue-in-cheek phrase, reasons are bullshit. Tell me a little bit more about that. Actually, I'm more serious about that than you think. So I wouldn't demean it and call it a tongue-in-cheek phrase. I'd call it a uh, definite understanding of the world. So it goes like this. If you think about it, what is the purpose of reasons in the world? What, what purpose do reasons serve? And I'm going to answer that question so you don't have to worry about it. For me, that the only thing they serve is to let you be a reasonable person or pretend to be a reasonable person. So if I do something nasty and someone says, why did you do that? And I have no reason, then I'm not a reasonable person. But if I give them some reason for my doing it, then I'm a reasonable person. And that's what it comes up to, even something nice. Why did you do it? But the truth is, we're so complex. You know, we have DNA in us that's come back down from the generations and back to the cave people. So we're so complex that there's no one, there's actually no one cause for anything we do. And so the minute we isolate one thing as the reason we did something, we're lying because we, we're putting a weight on something of which there are many different things. And we're just weighting it in a way that will make us feel good in terms of our self-image or whatever we're trying to support. So I mean, people have done experiments. They've put people into uh, MRI machines and they've given them a physical task to do. And they've asked them the reason that, you know, push a button, push the on or the off button or something like that. And then they've, they've asked them, uh, you know, tell us why you're doing it and do it. And it turns out that the part of the brain that fires the motor control that does it fires much earlier than the part of the brain that gives you the reason. So really, the model is you do stuff and then you make up a reason for doing it. And, and that's the way we work. We do what we do. You know, I don't I'm not thinking about what I'm saying to you now. It's just coming out of me automatically. OK, so if you ask me, why would you say that? Well, I'll think up a reason to, to tell you. I don't want to be rude to you, Matt. So you'll tell. But I have no idea why I said it. it just came out, <laughs> came out of my mouth and my brain. So that's the way we operate. There's many reasons for everything, you know, but we pick the one, you know, I often tell groups, if I'm talking to a big group, uh, often my mouth gets dry when I talk about it. And if I say, uh, when, I, when I get to talk about reasons, and if I say, if you ask me why my mouth is dry, I'll say I'm talking a lot, which is true. But that's not why my mouth is dry. It's true I'm talking a lot. It's true my mouth is dry, but I don't tell them the rest of the story. The rest of the story is I'm always dehydrated. My wife's always on my case. I don't drink enough. Invariably, I may have drunk a bottle of wine the night before. I may have biked uh, 10 miles. You know, there's, there's got a whole bunch of factors why I'm, I'm my mouth is dry. And I don't really know which one it is. But the obvious one that makes me you know, hides stuff about me. I don't want to tell the group and makes it sort of obvious is I'm talking a lot and my mouth is dry. No one questions that. That's a good reason. I actually use the, you know, you put five O's if you read my book for good, meaning no reason is good. So that's all I did. It's a good reason that I'm, I, my mouth is dry, but that's nonsense because my mouth's dry even on, when I'm not talking on times. So it's that kind of thing. We have like a simple cause and effect model and it doesn't work that that way. It's much com more complicated. There's no one cause for anything practically. And it goes back in your history. I mean, you, you don't know most of these things. And the, the ones you know, you're going to pick the one that 
is the most advantageous in your conversation. So who cares, right? It's fine. What do I care what reasons you give me? Uh, yeah, it's just conversation, right? But the problem is with that, if you use reasons, they're often excuses. And that's the, the devastating thing with reasons. They're often excuses. And if you don't, if you, you keep using the excuses and you keep believing it, you'll never change your behavior. So that's why I'm very concerned and I picked a strong phrase like reasons are bullshit, meaning that any reason for human behavior is bullshit in the sense it's not the reason. There's many reasons for everything you do, and when you pick one reason, it's bullshit, and I don't care, it doesn't matter, but it does matter to you if, in fact, you want to change your behavior, and it's often an excuse for not getting stuff done. It's an excuse for not delivering the way you want to and for not living the life you want to. It's an excuse for not losing weight. It's an excuse for being late. It's an excuse for not getting the job done. It's an excuse for everything. And you'll never change if you don't face the truth. My epiphany came some years ago. I was uh, on the board of directors of a company in Berkeley, and I would be invariably late to the board meeting, invariably I was never on time to a board meeting. And then, and I'd come in, and I'd say, in those days, the highway was called Highway 17. I'd say, the traffic on Highway 17 was terrible. And they'd say, it's okay, Bernie. But at some point, I realized it isn't okay. And these people have other things to do with their lives, and they shouldn't be waiting on me. So I realized I should either get off the board, or I should shape up and be responsible and give it enough valence in my life to be there on time. And once I did that, I just left early. I mean, it was, it was no, it's not rocket science, because before I would always just leave just in time that if there was no traffic in Palo Alto, no traffic on the road up to Berkeley, no traffic in Berkeley, I'd be there on time. But there was traffic. Could you imagine that? There was traffic on the road, and I was always late. So once I left early enough, my whole life changed. I, be, I was went from the person that was always late on everything to the pain in the neck who always starts everything on time and is never late at all. And my life is much better. I don't have to weave in and out of traffic risking everyone's life and I don't have to make excuses. And it just works so much better. Well, I would have never done that. I would have never changed if I had just believed my bullshit reason of the traffic. And it was true there was traffic, but that was not the reason I was late. Okay, there were many reasons, okay, including not leaving on time. Uh, so not leaving early enough and not giving enough of a concern for, for being there for my responsibility to the board. So it's that simple thing. The minute I stopped lying to myself and I could tell myself the truth, it was easy to change the behavior. But if I kept lying, I would have never done it. So that's what's the important thing about just keeping in mind you reasons are bullshit. I work with people in the D school. I nobody gives a reason. They, they start with, well, I, I'm not going to give you the reason, Bernie. They just nobody gives a reason for anything. They just do what they do, or they don't do what they do, and they just say what's happening, what's not happening. Another great example is um, I get uh, several emails a month from somewhere in the world. Nowadays, it's Iran and China, uh, Pakistan, of students who want to come to Stanford to do a PhD with me. 
I don't have to answer any of these emails. I don't know these people, but often they're very well researched. It's not just their professor, but they know me and they, they've looked up my work and all that. So I feel I should be nice and give them an answer. So what I used to do before my epiphany about reasons is I used to say, I'm sorry I can't take you because I don't have any money, or I'm sorry I can't take you because I'm going on sabbatical. Invariably, they would push back. If I don't have any money, they have a rich uncle. If I'm going on a sabbatical, they can wait another year. And it went on like that until I was just so frustrated I would truncate. Nowadays, I don't give them a reason. I just say, sorry, I can't help you. Good luck. And about 90% of the time, I get an email back saying, thanks for answering my email, professor. And it's the end of the story. And I find in my whole life, if I don't give reasons, people don't, unless people ask me for it, I don't give them a reason. I just tell them what I'm doing or what I'm not going to do. And life goes on. It works much, much better. So the point is, you don't need reasons at all. And the, the harm, if you use them, is you're going to Get in your own way, and you're never going to change your behavior. And if you're happy and nothing's fine, use reasons. Keep doing it. But if you just try it out, you're going to see it's amazing. And the problem is, I always warn anyone I tell to, you cannot take do this at home. You cannot tell anyone in your life the reasons are bullshit, because they will not like you anymore. <laughs> so I have never told my wife the reasons are bullshit. I've never told my children. I never tell my friend. But I tell people who do my workshops, and I tell my co-workers, and it's okay to say oh, Bernie says reasons are bullshit, but it's not okay to tell someone their reasons are bullshit. But it's okay to tell yourself. So it's really important to understand this is a really important tool. It works. It works for thousands of people. It works in my work environment in several places at the university. Everyone knows they won't use bullshit reasons around me. And it's really great. And it makes people work at a higher level. But do not tell anyone else. If you see people doing it, just smile. Just fix yourself. Don't fix anyone else so you're going to get into trouble. So that's a long answer for reasons. <laughs> no, that was great. How does self-image tie into this? Yeah, well, again, it's you're using your, self, your reasons to support your self-image. So if, if I, let's say I have, I have a sense of Bernie being a very reliable person and I let you down, okay? You know, I promised you something, Matt, and I, I screw up and I don't do it. So I'm not going to say... You know, unless I'm big enough about it, I'm not going to say, hey, Matt, I screwed up. I'm going to give you some reason. Hey, Matt, I couldn't do that because, you know, I'll give you some bullshit reason. And that will help me not feel I let you down. And But it will also make it so I'll never change. So that's the problem with it. Uh, so what I find really what you do is if you have to give someone a reason, don't be a jerk. Give them a reason. But if, if I say to myself, I'm never going to do that again. Like if I say, you know, Matt, I let you down. Uh, I didn't do it because I got I had an emergency. And I say to myself in my head, hey, that's bullshit. I'm never going to lie to Matt again. I'll lie to you again, but eventually I'll stop. If I keep calling myself on it, eventually I'll stop and I'll say, Matt, I want you to know I let you down. I really feel sorry about it. And tell me what I can do to make it up to you. OK, I'll just be upfront about it. And that's the difference between uh, just being about what you are and taking responsibility for what you do. And then you can become a better person if you want to. It's really easy. I think it makes so much sense that if you almost reframe reason and just substitute that with the word excuse 
in many cases yeah. it's it's a, you can essentially plug and play that and yet it completely changes the context of of the statement and that's the value in the whole concept that's the most for me that's the most valuable part of the whole concept and most people won't use the word excuse but they'll use the word reason so what i'm doing is by calling it out that way i'm making myself and others conscious of that and it does really work it does really cut down for these uh, nonsense reasons and it lets you change. I mean, that's the main thing to me. The main advantage is you can change. And that's so uh, what I'd like to do in my life. I'd like to be the best Bernie I possibly can. And I'm working on it. <laughs> Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to come back to the reframing question because I think it's really important and I want to dig into that a little bit deeper. Just for listeners who might have missed it earlier, can you restate the question that you use to flip problems and to reframe them? Sure. If I have a problem that I'm, we're all good problem solvers, but there are problems that we get stuck on and everyone has problems they lose sleep over and they just just don't go away. And those kind of problems, if you ask yourself, what it would do for you if you solve that problem, if that problem were gone for your life, what would it do? How would it change your life? What would it accomplish for you? 
and you take the thing that it would do for you, and you make that the problem you want to solve, you've reframed from the original thing to the thing that you really want to happen, you have a problem then that when you do that, it opens up the solution space tremendously because it includes the original thing you're working on, but that won't work for you, but it gives you a whole bunch of other things that will work, and it often it's just very simple to be there, and it's, it's over, you know. I had a classic example in my life. I was worried uh, they changed the laws and it was an issue whether I should retire or not. I could not retire. And I was losing sleep over it. And when I applied this method to myself, I said, what would it do for me if I could, if I could decide whether to retire or not? And I said, I could stop worrying about it. And I said, well, how do I stop worrying about whether to retire or not? It was like a light bulb. I just stopped, literally, and it's, I don't want to tell you how many years ago it is, I never thought about it again, whereas I'd lost two months sleep worrying about this decision. And turned out I didn't even have to make the decision, nobody cared. But I had beaten myself up socially thinking I had to make that decision, and once I realized, once I made the decision, what it would do for me is I could stop worrying about it, I just stopped worrying about it without making the decision. <laughs> I mean, it's so simple, it was I cannot tell you the feeling of excitement I had when that happened in my head. So that was a simple example of when you reframe it, often the problem just disappears <laughs> because you were working on the wrong problem. Is it not an issue? Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's a hard problem. But now the solution space is bigger and you will find an answer. So the question is, what would it do for me if I solve this problem? And then you take that result of that answer and you flip it and go to work on just achieving that result through any different avenue that you might think about and you forget about your original problem statement just it's gone you don't need that it's gone it's the wrong thing you were working on the wrong thing oops don't i didn't mean to waste all that time forget about it and then go on the new thing and when you solve that it will take care of what you thought you were going to take care of in the first place and i think it was in your google talk you mentioned the idea of never going more than two levels with that question can you can you explain that Sure, yeah. Well, it's this whole idea of bullshitting yourself and lying to yourself. So keep going up, you're going to get to the ultimate ex existence question. And I've met people like that in India, and they're blind from looking at the sun, and they haven't talked to anyone in five years, and they're naked in the woods. You know, that's, but if you're going to stay in the game, you don't want to go up more than two levels because you get to these questions of existence. But if you're going to play the game, usually one level's enough, but maybe what... You, you do it twice. So, so once you get to the first thing it would do for you, ask yourself what that would do for you, and you get another thing. And it, you can keep going on. But the, the truth is you've been lying to yourself because once you go up one level or at most two, you have to know what the real question is. And if, if it isn't, you, you have to just go back and start again because it, I have that in workshops all the time. You know, to, the people want to keep going and it's nonsense. It, there's never a need to go beyond one or at most two iterations on that. And then you've got the solution space and you've got the problem. But if you're lying to yourself, of course, you'll never be there because you're not really getting the thing you really need. So you have to just go back and say, uh, just imagine me or someone standing next to you saying, bullshit, bullshit, give yourself the right reason. And you could try various reasons, but the problem is our self-image. So we don't say the nasty things, you know, I'm doing this. Why, why you know, I often get this thing. Uh, the problem is how do I get my company to do X? Okay. 
And well, what would, why would you want your company to do X? Oh, well, it would be better for the company. Now I keep working on it. It's all bullshit. They, they hope they're going to get a raise. They hope if they get the company to get X, they'll get recognized and their boss will give them a raise. So the question is really now how, how to get the company to do X. The question is how do I get a raise? You know, it's a total different question. They could get the company to do X and they, they could even get fired. Who knows? You know, so it's that kind of thing. But people's self-images, they don't feel good that they want to get a raise or they want to do better than their colleague. So they make up some grandiose public thing like something good for the company. Well, that's never going to get you stuck, unstuck if you're stuck, if you're lying to yourself. So that's what I'm talking about. You can go on for 10 levels and never get to the right answer if you not don't tell yourself the truth, which may not be something that you're proud of. But it's all done in your head. You know, it's, it's not, not a much risk except for yourself and learning more about yourself. So I want to get to the distinction between trying and doing. I know you've written it and talked a lot about that as well, and I think it's really important to share with the listeners. Yeah, so that's an important thing. I agree with you. I think it's a very important thing. The first thing is that, you know, Yoda aside in Star Wars, where he says there's no try, there's only do, it, there is a try. And, and the trying is okay. There's nothing wrong with trying in the world. And, but, and there's nothing wrong with doing. And the problem is we conflate the two. We think they're the same thing and they're not. And the way I see it, if you're trying to do something, it might or might not happen. And if you're doing something, it's going to happen no matter what. Okay, and so what happens is people think they're doing, but they're really only trying because they run into an obstacle and they're defeated. And if people are easily defeated, that's called trying. It's not called doing. And it's okay. It, it sometimes it's better to be to try and not to do. If you do, sometimes you might kill yourself. You might you might do harm to the world. So I'm not voting as to whether trying or doing are better than the other. But I am voting and saying that do not confuse them. So if you're doing, then you are going to have to make it happen no matter what, you know, within your moral standards. If I have to kill you to do it, I might change my mind. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to let an obstacle stop me. So a, a trivial example is my wife and I were driving past a movie in San Francisco, and I noticed a huge crowd in front of it. And uh, I know we've drive past that movie theater many times. There's never anyone in front of it. And I figured, wow, this is going to be a great show. We should go. And my wife was reluctant, but I convinced her. So I told her to get out of the car and buy two tickets. And I went to park the car. When I came back 10 minutes later, she was in front of the box office, but not online. And I asked her, why wasn't she online? She said they were sold out. She couldn't get tickets. And at that time, she was defeated, right? And the truth is, she was trying to go there. She was, She didn't really have an investment going. She just was trying to please me. So when they put an obstacle in her way with no tickets, she was over. It was done. I was going to go. didn't matter what. So I went along the line, and eventually I scrounged two tickets, and we went. And, of course, she was right. It was terrible. We shouldn't have gone. But the point simply is it was the difference between trying and doing. She was trying. She hit an obstacle. She had a good reason for not going on. They were sold out. I was doing the fact that they didn't have tickets didn't stop me one second. I just walked down the line and, you know, I, I 
got tickets. I bought some tickets from people. So I was going to go in no matter what. You know, I was going to spend it. It wouldn't matter how much money. I actually bought the tickets at face value, but I would have spent a lot of money because I wanted to go. It's as simple as that. You understand? And it's, I had a, another example, which is the opposite one. I was supposed to go to uh, Dallas Fort Worth because someone had given me some research money. I was glad to have the money, but I really didn't want to go to the meeting. And I got to the San Francisco airport, and it was a miracle. All the flights to Dallas-Fort Worth were canceled because of snowstorms. So I called up. I said, I'm sorry, I can't come. And they said, that's fine. That was the end of the story. Now, the truth is, I was trying to get to Dallas, and I got a good excuse not to go there. But if I was really going to go to Dallas, if my life depended on getting to Dallas-Fort Worth, the fact that the airport was closed with a snowstorm would not have stopped me. Okay, I still still could have gotten there if I really wanted to get there. And that's what you have to understand. The difference between trying and doing is there will be obstacles often. And if you're trying, you'll stop. And that's fine. Nothing's wrong with it. Could be the best thing. But if you really want to do it, the obstacle will not stop you. It's just an excuse if you use the obstacle. It's a bullshit reason. So it all ties together. Bullshit reasons come up all the time in making us go from when we're trying, when we're doing something to trying to do it. They convert us because they stop us. And there are so many stories about miracles that happen by people transcending these obstacles, it gets them to a much better solution than if there were no obstacles. So in a way, the obstacles are, in fact, often a gift. They're not, a, they're not really a deterrence unless you let it be a deterrence, you see. So that's what I mean, the difference between trying and doing. I love the idea that this trying-doing distinction mirrors, in many ways, the same principle of moving beyond excuses and reasons and moving into execution. Absolutely. It's actually it's a good application of, of bullshit reasons because often there, as I say, you, you're doing something and you get frustrated and you stop and then you have a reason, a good reason why you couldn't do it. My wife had a good reason why she couldn't do it. They were sold out. It's, it's, she wasn't lying. It was the truth. But that's not why you shouldn't go to theater. That's the same thing. It's all these reasons are just they're nonsense because there are lots of ways of handling stuff. And I had a, a, a friend, I met him when he came to Stanford. He had a, a back injury in the shower. He was a swimmer and he had a back surgery. And the surgeon told him he's never going to swim again competitively. And he didn't listen. And he actually went to the Olympics and he set a gold medal and got a, set a world record. And he's a serial entrepreneur. And he told me that taught him at a very early age that if you get an obstacle, it doesn't necessarily stop you. And uh, walking around the obstacle can really be something because he was a better swimmer than if he hadn't had that accident in his mind. So it's that kind of thing, really, that uh, it's just how determined you are. And it's kind of magic. You see that all the time around the university. Students get frustrated with something, they walk away, and some other student is more perseverant, and they go through and they get it. Some people are just built into them. You know, the minute they encounter a no, they mean, I can't do it. Others, the minute they encounter a no, they get excited, and I'm going to do it in spite of that. And it's just your attitude towards life. I love this idea that obstacles are gifts and sometimes they can even result in a stronger outcome or a better result once you've transcended them. Yeah. If you don't, you know, you're doing it in a prosaic way. If there's no obstacle and everything, it's just, you're going to do what everyone else would do. But if you get the obstacle, then you got 
about something, you know. If I had gone to Dallas Fourth Worth magically, with you know, I'd have a story for the rest of my life instead of just going home reading a book. So, <laughs> you know, if I had chosen to take the heroic path, but I wasn't going. I mean, it was a gift because I was very glad to try to get there, not get there. So it's it's that way, you know, all the time. If you think about the things in your life that you're really proud of, usually it's because you got through an obstacle and you did something that was amazing for you. You've also touched on this notion about the distinction between power and force and how that interacts with doing and trying. Yeah, so I think that's an important notion also. I think that if you... uh, I do an exercise in my groups where I hold something and I ask someone to try and take it away from me. And then I change the rule and they don't succeed. And then I ask them this time to different instruction, take it away from me. Don't try to do it. Take it away from me. And what often happens, they just try harder. They don't take, they just, they just try. So what they do is they're trying to use force. The first time they're using a little force, the next time they're using a greater force. But if they're really going to take it away from me, they have to use power. They have to whisk it away that I don't even know it happened. You know, it's like, it's sort of an, a keto to these exercises in your mind. If they exercise power, I wouldn't have a chance. They would just take it. You know, it would, wouldn't even be a contest. It wouldn't be struggling over it. And that whole analogy is really important because in life, it's much more, it's much better to be powerful than it is to be forceful. So if it really doesn't go and you're trying, we're using force. It's, it's sort of, it's, you know, it takes a lot of energy to try and use a lot of force and stuff. But if you're powerful, you just do it. It's just, it's, it's sort of beyond worrying about the, the it just flow it's a sort of a flow is a kind of a good analogy to it you know in one case it's flows in the other case it's effortful and in my case if it flows it's powerful it's a power it's not a, a struggle which is force now you might get there with force but it's you know it's even you get it it's not so elegant it's, and it's it's kind of fatiguing so I think it is a really good notion to understand in life it's much better to be powerful than forceful and uh, it's sort of a different in my mind it's a different color a different kind of personality and all that so you know I could be a in the D school I could be a forceful boss but I think of myself as a powerful boss because I don't I lead from the bottom and I and I don't force anyone to do anything. I lead by example and I feel very powerful because I know what's gonna happen. Whereas if it's forceful, I have to watch them and track it. And I don't watch anybody, you know, I, I just feel uh, it just the, the power exudes out of the place itself. So it's both organizational and it's personal, but it's really a, a good a really good model to think in terms of. So how do we begin to operate out of a place of power instead of a place of force? Well, I think it has to do with integrity and not being an asshole. So I think in general, you know, people that you know are assholes try and be powerful and, you know, exert their whatever it is. Uh, They may be in a position where they can do that or they may not, but it doesn't work. It's not appropriate. But I think it's power comes Power, force comes from kind of a negative instinct, a pushing around instinct, and power comes from just a powerful being, just your own self. You exude what you're doing, and you're confident in it. You know what your level is. You know what's appropriate for you, and you work that way. And uh, you may recruit others, but it's done from a freely given thing, not from a forceful thing. So I would say that's my intuitive model of what what i'm talking about there Uh, so uh, it's a matter of 
having confidence in yourself and uh, doing what feels the right thing for you. And if it isn't, then you're working hard and you're forcing it. Maybe you ought to figure out some other way to be you or some other way to work. So it's, it's a subtle notion. But I think it, it, for me, it's a powerful notion. It just, and in that one exercise that I mentioned to you about taking something away from me, I just feel it with people. I cannot tell you the difference between tugging and forcing and just the power of, I can't even resist. You know, they just, I don't, there's no chance that I'm going to hold on to it. And that happens very rarely, I might mention, but it does happen on occasion. Most of the people use force all the time. Overall, I think this this seems like a winning formula for execution, reframing your problems, not letting bullshit reasons get in your way, and, and operating from a place of doing. All of these seem like a really powerful combination for achieving any result that you have in front of you. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, that, it works for my life. I mean, my book is basically based on my life experiences as a professor and as an engineer. And I've been teaching this stuff for over 40 years, way before there was a D school. And uh, I cannot tell you how many people are out there who I meet years later and they say, you know, that class changed my life. Uh, you know, I'll never forget. And they always pick something like reasons of bullshit or trying or doing or reframing. And I cannot tell you how much that helped me, Professor. Thank you. And now after the book's out, I get all these emails from people. I've had this problem for 30 years, and by chapter three, it was gone. Thank you. So yeah, it, it works. It all works. And, you know, it's like everything. Not not everything works every time and every moment for everyone. And there's enough in it that it is really useful for you to apply in your life. But you have to use it. I mean, I have a colleague. He comes to a workshop I do once a year. And after the workshop, he says, you know, that reframing stuff is great. I just... I do an exercise in the workshop. He says, that ex- it just it took care of my problem again. And I'm nice to him. I hug him and I thank him. But I'm wondering, why does he wait every year to, for the workshop to do it? <laughs> why doesn't he do it himself during the year when he has a problem? And so from that, I've gotten the idea that a lot of people, they listen to things or they read things and they believe them and it's good, but they don't apply them. Well, to me, it's useless if you don't apply it. It doesn't matter if you think it's a great idea or a terrible idea. You have to apply it in your life and see how it works and give it a chance. And in my experience, this stuff really works. We call that the learning doing gap. And we have a, a couple podcast episodes about it. But I'm curious for listeners who want to concretely implement what we've talked about today, what would be one piece of homework that you would give them to start implementing some of these ideas? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say the Three, one is uh, don't use reasons. It's as simple as that. Every time you notice yourself using a reason, attempt to stop doing it. Or if you do it, just know you tell yourself, I'm not going to do it again. That's one. Another thing is if you lo- find yourself losing sleep over a problem several nights in a row, reframe it. That would be another thing. And the third thing is next time you're doing something, ask yourself if you're really going to be doing it or you're just trying to do it and they decide which one it is and then see what happens. So three simple things. <laughs> Great pieces of advice, all of them. Easy to execute, as you mentioned earlier, risk-free in the sense that yes. there's no downside. Absolutely. No downside at all, really. 
So Bernie, where can listeners find you and your work online? Uh, well, the best place, I have a web page for my book, which is called, it's, the title of the book is The Achievement Habit, but somebody grabbed that away from me. So the web page is Achievement Habit without the V. So it's just achievementhabit.com. You'll get a lot of examples and a lot of things about my book and uh, you'll see some of the workshops I've run. So that's really a good place to refresh your mind on the things we talked about here. Well, Bernie, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this knowledge and wisdom, uh, really great strategies for achieving the results that we want in life. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to be here. It was a nice conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're gonna get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. The Science of Success.